Welcome to the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Erse. Today's episode, You've Got Nerve, a conversation about pinched nerves of the neck and low back. Today, Dr. Erse talks with Dr. Brian Ciccarelli, who is also a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. Let's join the two doctors now and listen in. So, Dr. Erse, tell me specifically, what exactly is a pinched nerve? How will I know I have a pinched nerve? And then lastly, why should I care that I have one? Well, we need to start with what nerves do, and they are pretty important in our body. Most nerves look a little like a phone cable. They have different color fibers. Some give us feeling, and we get a a sense of what is hot or cold, so we don't touch a hot stove. Other nerves give us the um, ability to feel a very small pebble in our shoe. The other types of nerves then have purely movement functions. They make muscles contract. They control strength in a muscle, an arm, or leg. So the the nerve basically has two main functions. It, It gives us feeling and sensation, but it also controls movement or what's called motor function. As nerves get compressed or pinched, some of those fibers that handle one or the other mentioned in uh, um, modalities that the nerve has, those get pinched and they become the reason people have symptoms. Those symptoms can be weakness in a, in a muscle or an arm or leg. They can be burning, tingling, a uh, painful prickly feeling. And people just have pain from them because the nerves have a a portion of of pain bundles that help us make sure we don't step on a, a nail or a, a, a thing that's going to cause a break in our skin or, or burn us. So we have these pain fibers that are protective, but if they get overstimulated or pinched, they cause a burning pain, usually a very eye-opening pain. And for that reason, most people want to know what they can do to relieve that. So I can tell you from personal experience of having a pinched nerve in my neck, it was one of the worst pains I ever had. It felt like I was constantly getting shocked. If you happen to put your finger in a a socket or just have an electrical shock and the pain was certainly one of the worst pains I ever had. So I would urge you that if you have this kind of pain, you absolutely need to seek care. So, John, in talking about that, uh, how does one get a pinched nerve? I mean, what is the um, mechanism behind somebody actually getting a pinched nerve in their neck or back? Well, I'm glad you distinguished where we're talking about pinched nerves because today's talk is going to stay away from things like carpal tunnel in your wrist, things around the knee or elbow. Those places can also have nerve entrapment. But we're going to focus today on on the back and the spine. So your spine runs from the top of your head down to your what's, what's the tailbone, and there's 24 different vertebrae. And vertebrae are simply square-shaped blocks of bone that have a cushion between them called a disc. It's much like a sponge or even a more liquidy material, much like uh, the jelly in a donut. But as we get older, those sponges or some of the jelly donuts tend to dry out as the the water content in the disc um, just gets um, 
less water content. So as that happens, the disc spaces can narrow. The bones can actually start to either flatten or they may, they may develop what are called spurs, which are little bone prominences like a little icicle that comes off the edge of a bone. The nerves come off the back at each level of those vertebrae. So each little block has a nerve that goes to the right and to the left. The ones in your neck go to your arms and the back of your shoulder and shoulder blade. The ones in the low back go to your hip and down your legs. And then there's certainly a, a nerve at each level, but also on each side. So when we when we wonder why do we get these things in the first place, the main reason is we talked about 24 vertebrae. Well, the 12 in the middle called the thoracic or what's called the middle of your back, they rarely have problems. And we think the reason is that our neck moves much more in one direction or the other, up and down, side to side, ear to ear, what's called side bending. And so does the low back. I mean, we play golf, we play baseball, we twist, we lift, we, we do activities around the house, we garden. And so the low back and the neck both have much more twisting or what are called torsional deformities or stresses put upon them. Those lead, I believe, to some of the uh, injuries to the low back or the neck that contribute to nerve entrapment. We see very few problems in that whole middle portion of your back called the thoracic spine. So today's talk is going to focus mostly on the neck and the low back and how we can uh, recognize what the problem is, but also come up with some simple and then gradually work toward more complex treatment options. So when you talk about how do you get it, you can get it from an acute injury, correct? Like if you're in a car accident or if you lift something really heavy and twist the wrong way, you could rupture a disc that presses on a nerve almost immediately. Or you can develop a pinched nerve by the formation of spurs and narrowing of that space where the nerve runs through over a period of time, correct? That's right. And, and most of the time people will say, in their history, boy, I remember, you know, I fell off a horse April 4th, two years ago, and my back and right leg have been burning ever since. That was a traumatic injury. Same thing with you know, people who tell you about a neck problem that went down the shoulder blade or into the arm. Those events, car accidents, traumatic injuries, falls, are, are easy to, to put a timetable on. The other ones are a little harder because your low back it takes an awful lot of force and because we've evolved from walking on all fours to standing, the force of the, the spinal column goes to the lower back. So the bottom of the low back is what's called the L5 vertebrae. That's the lowest of the lumbar vertebrae. And they think the majority of the forces actually get transmitted from our upright posture by walking and as evolution has, has taken us down our um you know, method of locomotion. What we try to do, though, is is realize that those those are pretty sturdy vertebrae, and they don't usually get a ruptured disc with one injury. It's usually lots of multiple small, what I call micro trauma or repetitive injuries, where you twist and turn and twist and turn. You work in a factory or you you play sports over time, and then one day you bend over and pick up a paper plate, and you say, "I ruptured a disc doing that." Well. It didn't happen from that. It happened with 20 other or 50 other micro injuries. And then one little thing broke the camel's back, which 
um, in the case of a disc would be that cushion between the bones where the lining is now stretched and then finally lets that jelly come out of the space between the bones, much like the, the jelly donut analogy. So if you were to see a patient in your office and you suspected them to have a pinched nerve, what, what kind of physical exam would you do? Would there be certain signs that would be obvious to you, or would you have to get special imaging studies or, or other tests that might confirm that they have a pinched nerve? Yeah, and, that, and that's a good question. I want to hit every um, segment of that. I do want to say in our history, we would first want to know nobody had any numbness um, to where they couldn't feel their legs, they couldn't control bowel or bladder function, they had more serious pressure on the spinal cord. Those are more worrisome um, involvement of the spinal column and where our nerves come from. Um, so as long as those are eliminated as, as real worrisome stories in the history, we then get to the exam and we really start from the top and go to the bottom. We ask people if it if it involves their their head and their cranial nerves. And most of the time, again, the neck won't involve anything above that. But we just go from top to bottom. So we look at the, the patient, move their arms, and can they raise their arms over their heads? Can they Do they have movement? Do they have strength? We check if they have feeling in certain areas. We ask them to point to where their problem is. And as silly as that sounds, someone taking their index finger and drawing a line from their shoulder down to the top of their index finger helps us see the pattern of a certain nerve, and that, that nerve comes from a certain level and keys us in a little to that type of diagnosis. We also use a little hammer. You've seen doctors use those little percussion hammers called reflex hammers. So certain nerves, when they get injured, will make one of those reflexes go away, and by finding a normal one on one arm and the absence of one on another arm, that can help localize or find where uh, the certain level of the nerve injury may be. We do the same thing in the low back. We check your hip muscles, your leg muscles to straighten the knee, pull the toes up, push the foot down, and we look at where numbness and burning are because those are those symptoms that a nerve has when we talk about sensation or feeling. And most people can tell you where they hurt, if they're burning or tingling or numb. I keep it pretty simple. I ask them, is it on the... Is it on, does it go below your knee? Does it go to the top of your foot, the bottom of your foot, little toe side or big toe side? And most people can, can identify with where they're feeling the problem. And then we do provocative tests. We turn their head. We tilt their neck a little. We'll straighten their leg out to check a low back problem. That's called a, a way to put tension on what's called the sciatic nerve. And the sciatic nerve is something people have heard of, but it's really more of a combination of nerves as they get into the leg and some of these then branch off to different areas but anything that puts more pressure on a nerve and aggravates a problem helps us pinpoint where that problem is then then we get to the i think you've got a problem stage of the exam we think it might be a nerve problem what kind of tests would we do well we've always going to start with a basic x-ray and if your doctor doesn't take an x-ray number one nobody's going to no insurance company's going to allow you to do an MRI or CAT scan or other tests. So you start with simple things. Make sure it's not a fracture. Make sure it's not a slip vertebrae where one vertebra slides forward on the other. Or as you do different views with the person bending their neck and straightening their their um, their chin back, you can actually see if the vertebra is moving on different uh, views we take. So we try to see 
as much as we can on a plain film. We look for calcium deposits. We look for bone spurs, as we talked about. Then if that, but, but you have to understand, an x-ray doesn't show the nerves. It doesn't show the discs. It doesn't show more of the details we need to see about a nerve. That leads us to CAT scans, which have more radiation, but can be safely done in a person with a pacemaker or an implantable electrical device. But the, the test of choice by far is an MRI test. An MRI is a radio wave test. It doesn't involve radiation to the patient. Um, there are some that are open. Others are a little more enclosed. So you'd want to tell your, their doctor if you get claustrophobic and things like that. But they have open ones that's much like laying on a pool table for half hour, 45 minutes. But you get a great study, and it's, it shows all the discs. It shows the nerves. It shows where those little uh, pinch nerves may be unhappy. And they can maybe be unhappy in more than one place. They may have um, pressure from one of two things. And we talked about this jelly as a disc between the bones. That's considered a soft disc. But... Anything that pushes on the nerve is going to make it unhappy and cause compression or pinching. So the other type of entrapment of a nerve, whether it's in the neck or low back, is a hard disc. And a hard disc is just a term for a bone spur, a bony prominence. Um, and you have to think of nerves as having a little exit tunnel out of each level of the back. So when the nerves come off the spinal cord at let's talk about that L5 level in the low back, they go out a little tunnel, just like the Holland Tunnel in New York. But if something is pushing into the tunnel, if there's an earthquake, if there's a bone spur, if there's something digging into that nerve, then it doesn't have any room to move, the nerve gets compressed or pinched, and all of a sudden we have these symptoms we've been talking about. And then finally, John, if, if you get an x-ray, do you normally also suggest they get an EMG or a nerve conduction study just to assess the amount of damage to the nerve? Is that necessary? It's a good test. The problem with it is it won't show an abnormal nerve problem for about six weeks. So if you, let's say you fell asleep watching a, a movie last night because there's no sports on, and you have to um, realize your foot's numb, and you think, oh, my goodness, I've got a nerve entrapment. There isn't a nerve test called an EMG that's going to pick that up for about six weeks until the nerve is actually um, conducting its electricity more slowly. And the nerve test called EMG does three things. It says, number one, is there a nerve problem or not? So if you've had this for a couple months and you need to know, is it in my neck? Is it in my arm? Is it in my uh, carpal tunnel or both? The EMG says, is there a nerve problem first? Second, where's the problem? If my, is it in my neck, my shoulder, or my wrist? And three, how bad is the problem? Is it mild, moderate, or severe? If the nerve has severe uh, slowing in this test we use to check the timing of the electric impulses, then it's not working very well. You can start to get nerve damage. Muscles don't work as well when they aren't getting the stimulation from the nerve. And I tell people that a nerve looks much like a, a black electric wire. We talked about those different layers or colors. And if you have nerve damage, it's like the black coating on the wire has been taken away with one of your pair of pliers. You still have that copper inside to conduct electricity, but you're now getting some nerve damage. Those things are not as quick to recover as earlier nerve problems. So completely ignoring the symptoms is not always the right answer, and that's when 
that's when I uh, wanted to agree with you earlier about, you know, having someone take a look at it and say, you know, we better know how, how bad this is or how acute the problem uh, needs to be addressed. So to summarize, it's, it's a combination of taking an accurate history, getting a really good physical examination, putting together those pieces, and then getting appropriate diagnostic testing such as MRIs and possibly an EMG. And that seems that it should fairly well localize if you do have a pinched nerve and at what level it is, correct? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, the, the way to summarize um, even further is we have to look at all that information and then look at you. So if you've got a ruptured disc at the lumbar fifth level on the right, but your left knee and leg hurt, those don't match. Right. So we have lots of tests that show lots of things, but we're treating patients. So if someone shows me an MRI and I'm staring at that and I'm not examining you to see what your problem is, I want to see you first. Sure. I want to know what's wrong, where your problem is. Then I know where to look on that imaging study and say, why is that nerve unhappy? Well, it's got a piece of bone digging into it or it's got a, got a little piece of toothpaste. Um, so I think it's real important to try to find out a couple things before people go further. And, I, and we're going to talk a little bit about why would someone want to do more than just find what's wrong? Is there, is there a reason to try simple things first? When would surgery be needed? And you know, how would a surgeon or someone arrive at a reason to do something for somebody? So going down that path, John, you see a patient in your office and you've kind of determined that they may have a pinched nerve. What can help a pinched nerve? What would you typically recommend initially for a patient that presents to you with a pinched nerve, a suspected pinched nerve? Yeah, and that's and this is going to solve the problem 90% of the time. We're going to tell people, go to bed or if it's your low back, rest the, uh, the injured area. You can alternate heat and ice. You know, get a little pillow under your knee to take some pressure off the nerves. We talked about how nerves, when they're stretched, are more irritable. So bending your knee and bringing your knees up toward your chest, laying on your side can help. But just avoiding the activity. You may have said, you know, my wife wanted me to paint the ceiling. My neck has been bent back for two days painting a ceiling, and I, I can't even turn it now. Well, you've really aggravated some of those areas of the neck that weren't a problem before, but the way you had your neck positioned, you've, you've gotten yourself into trouble. So we certainly try rest. Some of the simple anti-inflammatories, people can take any of those things like Motrin or Aleve over-the-counter for a few days, and they're pretty safe with some Tylenol for, for pain, and those two can be taken together. Most everybody's going to be recommended to see a physical therapist, and the therapist will do two things. They're going to go over some exercises that we'll talk about later, but they're also going to tell you how to avoid things that make it worse, and, and having the right things to do and avoiding the wrong things to do together is what gets most people better 90% of the time. So you've seen this patient back in the office six weeks later, and they've improved. Your recommendation to them would just, again, be careful with the way you're doing things and uh, paying more attention to mechanics and lifting and turning, et cetera, correct? That's correct. And, and occasionally, if, if the nerve is still unhappy and, and people with nerve pain, 
um, use the term neuritis. And anytime you put itis at the end of anything, it means inflammation of. So an anti-inflammatory may help, but there are also nerve medications. There's a medication called gabapentin. Its trade name is Neurontin. It's a non-narcotic, but it is a nerve pill, so to speak, and it can really quiet down nerve pain. And it actually helps us diagnose some problems of arm and leg pain when other things aren't helping. And we think, well, maybe it's a nerve. We give them a nerve medication and that really helps their symptoms. Well, that that's about all gabapentin helps. It isn't going to really make you feel funny. It does have a little bit of drowsiness um, as the, about the main side effect, but you can really start with very low dosing and increase it. And one of the best things about that medication is if, if its side effect is drowsiness, you can always take an extra pill or a higher dose at nighttime to get some rest because who cares if you're drowsy, right? So I think we, we, we like when you ask what happens at the six-week mark, we want to know, are we getting better or not? Do we still have muscle control and strength? Um, are we losing the ability to lift your arm? If you can't put a dish on a shelf, if you can't lift your foot up, now you're having a foot drop or a, or a significant weakness problem well, you may not have as much pain, but now you've got worse function. That pushes us into getting a little more aggressive, treating a problem or looking at other options besides watching and waiting. So surgery becomes more of a possibility with weakness being one of the predominant symptoms, correct? It does, but, but, but there's three things that you really need to consider any surgical intervention for a nerve problem. The first is failed conservative therapy. And, and almost everybody would say six weeks. If someone's working on you after three weeks, they probably have a boat payment, but that's really not giving the body time to heal something. So failure of adequate conservative therapy, and that includes rest, therapy, medications, avoidance of things that are making it bad. The second thing is a bona fide neurological test. We talked about an MRI, a CAT scan. There's even a dye test in the spine called a myelogram. But if you have one of those along with an EMG, those are, those are solid tests that then match the patient's symptoms. So if that L5 nerve on the right is where the disc is ruptured and pushing on the nerve, and that's where the person's pain is, then that matches. If it doesn't match, it falls off as one of the three criteria to do something because you're, you're not sure where the problem is. Third reason someone would consider having a surgery is if they had a progressive neurological deficit. Now that means all of a sudden you can't lift your foot up. You've got a foot drop. You can hardly put a dish on a shelf. You've got severe weakness in your arm. You're now involving function and loss of normal activities. And that nerve is more than unhappy. It's, it's not able to stimulate the, the muscles to work. It's, it may be continuing to cause a lot of pain. And that pushes us toward a little more aggressive treatment because people are, are not just waiting. Now they're, they're losing the ability to, to function normally. So that's where that um, surgical consult would be important. The most surgeons, believe it or not, are fairly conservative. And many of them would say, well, I think I know what the problem is. It matches your symptoms. That takes us to a thing I'd like to try before surgery, which might be pain management. And pain management is a way that an interventional doctor, usually an anesthesiologist or a, a specialized, trained pain doctor, may use 
injections using cortisone that we've talked in the past about PRP and stem cells. Those are some new emerging areas for some of the spine problems. Um, in fact, Jack Nicholas went to Munich, Germany for um, stem cell injections for his spine problem. And those injections have, have helped him avoid surgery. Again, I think people who, who have most of these problems want to try as many modalities as they can before surgery. We all have friends that are good in the chiropractic field. Some of the um, uh, DO physicians, the osteopaths, learn manual medicine techniques. Many of those can help um, adjust or improve the, um, the mechanical problems that we see, sometimes from our repetitive injuries we, we encounter. One thing to caution people is, especially in the neck, we don't do what are called vigorous cracking of the neck or things like that, that that could injure either the neck that already has a ruptured disc or some of the important arteries that run along the little openings in the side of the neck because uh, they can lead to injuries like a stroke or other things. So we're not talking about, you know, cracking and popping and, you know, doing vigorous things to an injured neck or an injured back. But there are some very simple things that a therapist can show you, and I, and I may wrap this up with just a couple simple things that are going to make most people better. So just to summarize, John, in closing, uh, would it be fair to say that most back and neck pain are not necessarily pinched nerves? Correct? That's, that's correct. So if you have back pain unaccompanied by sharp leg pain, it's, you're probably not a surgical candidate and one that can get better with physical therapy and other modalities. Is that correct? It would be correct in most instances. There are people who's, we talked about what's called a slip vertebrae, where one, one of the building blocks slides forward on the other, and that is just going to pull on the, the spinal nerves and, and just make the back really sore. Gotcha. And in those cases, you may not have the, the, um, the nerve involvement as extensively, but your back is, is really sore, and that's a mechanical back issue where we actually fuse or stiffen the bone sure. to keep it from wobbling, so to speak. But for your, your assessment is correct, Brian, because the majority of the people will get back pain in their life. In, in Asia, people don't even see a doctor with back pain because they, they just assume everybody's going to get back pain at some point in their adult life, they tell you just avoid whatever you're doing to cause it and figure out a way to make it better. There's so many people over there, they don't have enough doctors to deal with all the back problems. But, you know, we certainly probably can deal with most of these our, ourselves. Sure. So in closing, John, is there anything that you would like to tell your audience as far as uh, what to do, when to do it, why to do it? I, I would definitely embrace what your physical therapist tells you because you'll be able to treat thyself for most of these problems. Some simple exercises that help um, keep the back from being excessively swayed. Some of the ones for the neck can help by turning the chin to the right or left, pushing the ear down toward the shoulder. Most of these are simple things. And once you get those tracks to run on from your therapist, that's going to allow the patient to just treat themselves for the most part. And I think that'll help them understand what they can do to make themselves better in the future. Well, thank you, Dr. Ertz. I think the conversation went along the lines that you wanted it to, and certainly appreciate your information regarding this very important topic. 
Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Erse. Be sure to check back for additional episodes on important medical topics. This has been a production of Doctors Unmasked, produced by Terry O'Brien.